What's up, Gasol Education Nation? Today's episode is brought to you by The Payday Practice and our good friends Jeff Langmaid and Jason Deach. So how would South Gooden, Gary V, and Tim Ferriss create a chiropractic practice? The answer is in this book right here. So our good friends Jeff Langmange and Jason Deach, uh, they created the payday practice to basically show you how you cover your monthly expenses in one day every month. Guaranteed, generating monthly recurring revenue in your practice can create financial freedom, eliminate chronic financial stress, and turn the first day of each month from, damn, it's time to start over, to payday. Get a free copy today at www.thepaydaypractice.com. The Payday Practice will show you the exact step-by-step process that you can use to generate monthly recurring revenue in your practice. Get your free copy today at www.thepaydaypractice.com. All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Gestalt Education Show. We're back for part two with uh, with our, our good friend, Sue McGill. So we are down here now in the uh, in the treatment room. So we're in the trenches now. We're upstairs where we do the interview. We had an awesome discussion about all sorts of things. Uh, this one is going to be aimed a little bit more towards assessment, uh, but also we got a couple other things that we wanted to clean up and some things that we wanted to ask him. And so, uh, Brett, you and I have both actually seen him speak on some misconceptions with Stu McGill. What are some of your favorites and, and can we kind of dispel a couple myths for him? Yeah, I think the one that you hear so often that uh, people say, Stu, when they tight cast you and saying that you do not believe that the lumbar spine should flex. Uh, well, I wish they would uh, come and uh, get to know what it is we do around here. Uh, the lumbar spine shouldn't flex. Well, uh, if they read our science, we've done studies on Middle Eastern belly dancers, and believe me, they, their spines <laughs> flex, uh, rotate, laterally bend, and uh, the top half can stay still, and the bottom half can do all of those things independently as well. Um, however, they don't lift heavy weights. So, uh, to unpack that a little bit, um, do you want to uh, work with me for just a second, Taylor? Let's get it on. Uh, let's see, the spine doesn't flex. Why don't you put a unloaded Olympic bar, it's a calibrated Olympic bar, turn around and, and just rack that for me. So there's uh, 20 kilo, or what, 44 pounds for the Americans. Thank, now, you, what, thank you for that. What I would like you to do is do a pelvic tilt for me, flex your spine. Nice, and do the opposite, extend your low back. Flex and extend through the full range of motion, good. We started an experiment at the university where we asked random students with cleared for any back pathology to do that 10 times, that's enough. And do you know we had to stop the experiment because after 10 reps we created significant pain in some of them that we just couldn't justify continuing. So what we discovered was a wonderful uh, provocation test and you've heard arguments say in the powerlifting world, oh, it's okay to butt wink. And then we have a power lifter coming in and we measure them and they're, they're beautiful until they hit the point where they butt wink and that's where their pain is caused. And uh, we would probably say to them, well, uh, let's do this. And we just proved that butt wink is your pain provocation or we just proved that it isn't. Mm-hmm. So now you see we have a context to answer the question. Does flexion matter? 
It can, yeah. it can matter a lot. Right. It can be critical or it might not be. So there is the, thank you, there's the power of the uh, assessment. But uh, we can then form principles. If a person is very mobile in their spine, and they play a sport where, with a lot of spine mobility. We now have a discussion of power. Force times velocity is uh, power. If we have the spine moving very quickly and we don't have any background uh, injury or pain sensitivity, we're okay if the loads are low. So the power is low. High force, low velocity, the product of the two is zero. Conversely, if we have high load, in order to get to zero power, we needed zero motion. So if I'm pulling a bar, I can pull apart, slide it down, and then I'm going to initiate the bar by externally rotating, squeezing the bar, getting as tight as possible, and then pulling the hips through to create a beautiful, confident, powerful pull but with no spine power. The force was very, very high, but zero velocity. So that's one of the rules of um, uh, preventing injury. Keep the spine power low. So if I'm a golfer, very high spine motion, but uh, the force is very low. And when you measure that in guys who hit men and women, we just had another win at the World Long Drive Championship last week with uh, Lee Brandon winning the World Long Drive Champion for the third year. Uh, and yet, as strong as she is, if you use too much muscle in the golf swing, you create too much stiffness and you actually slow down. It doesn't go very far. But um, it's better to... Uh, uh, keep the power low, and that's how you survive in golf. Right. Getting too strong uh, has shortened a lot of oh, yeah. <laughs> golf careers. So there's a little bit of a start to the, the discussion. Whoever has heard that McGill doesn't think a, a spine should move has perhaps heard that in a specific context, and maybe we were talking about high-performance powerlifting. Right. But we weren't talking about surfing, <laughs> golf, um, uh, a little uh, midnight movement on the weekend, uh, <laughs> you know. Who doesn't like that? Yes. <laughs> so anyway, uh, all joking aside, there are some general uh, spine uh, rules that uh, if, if you violate them, uh, you have to be touched by the hand of God to... To, to break those rules and survive. And a few people are. Right. Well, there's this giant move, and, and Brett and I talked about it a lot, of, of just adaptation. You should just let your spine adapt. Just keep flexing. Your annulus will eventually adapt to it. Yeah, just keep squatting with a flex lumbar spine. You're going to be fine. Uh, well, boy, they keep us busy here with, uh, <laughs> with that one. Uh, I've uh, uh, spent a lot of years trying to perfect mechanostimulation for adaptation. And what we found is you can adapt the spine, that's true, but you are, are really in a hard spot when you ask the spine to adapt two different ways at the same time. So if you adapt mobility, uh, you lose the ability to bear heavy loads because in order to do so, 
the collagen that makes up the wall of the annulus is a fabric and if with repeated motion and more extreme motion you reduce the gooiness, shall we say, of the ground substance that holds the fibers together and stop them from delaminating. Um, so they lose their ability to contain very high pressures and they're more easy to herniate. Uh, you can soften a disc first by giving it a lot of motion and then putting a high load on it and it will actually herniate uh, sooner. So that's called preconditioning. Well, you see some people do that with their lifestyle or their training, uh, etc. Or you can adapt stiffness. Now, look at power lifters who are the far end of the athletic spectrum. They carry the highest loads down through their body. Um, but throughout their whole body, they're very stiff. Uh, they wear Birkenstocks because it's hard to tie their shoes. They can't scratch their ear, it impinges their shoulders, etc. Um, but they have adapted this stiffness. They even wear an exoskeleton, so their lifting suit is to add even more stiffness. Um, but they're not very mobile in their spine, so that's the adaptation they've made. Now there is some evidence talking about flexion in minors in Wales, that if uh, young men starting mining in a flex position, digging out coal in the coal seam, start at 16 years of age, uh, that there is some evidence that that adaptation schedule can be protective for later on uh, disc herniation. But you know when you if you hang around sheep shearers in New Zealand and Australia and the miners, the coal miners, <laughs> they walk around uh, permanently uh, uh, in, in that position. I mean, I'm, I'm joking that they, the proverbial they, um, a few uh, certainly have that uh, uh, character. But anyway, that's the uh, beginning of a discussion on uh, adaptation. Most people who come here want a bit of both, <laughs> you know. But uh, the next person who walks in might be a jiu-jitsu player or a submissions uh, athlete. And uh, they use their spines like boa constrictors. Well, you know, who are some of the outstanding influences in jiu-jitsu? If you take the Gracie family, uh, in, in jiu-jitsu. Their style of jiu-jitsu is to be a boa constrictor, work their spines and their hips into these very awkward positions to try and achieve a submission. But if they are feeling too much resistance and they have to use a lot of force, they abandon. They reset and start a new submission. So they don't combine uh, high force with a lot of deviated uh, spine uh, movements. Um, uh, I can go into the world of golf and, and who really has disabling uh, pain in golf and, and you know I know there's a lot of discussion about the backswing and, and the uh, x-factor and things like that. Um, but it seems to us in our uh, investigations that the peril of a deviated spine under high load is at, the, at ball impact. So there's actually a little bit of a pulse uh, at ball impact. The average golfer will load elastically and then without much muscle, because that would slow their rotation, uh, they go down 
into uh, almost impact. And then at that point, they form a little bit of a pulse to stiffen the hips, which starts a whip and it uncorks the energy in the club and it's called boring the ball uh, for distance. But at that moment of impact, if they go into a heavy lateral bend and twist, the hips are way ahead of the shoulders at impact. Now, put yourself into that position. Now impact your spine <clears throat> over and over and over again and you will get back pain fairly, fairly quickly. <laughs> yeah. exactly so right. it's a matter of putting together the kinetics and the kinematics and seeing when is the spine in a deviated position, when is the pulse of force being created and uh, the successful jiu-jitsu players, the successful golfers. Now, am I talking about a perfect neutral at ball impact? No, but if you're at 100% of lateral bend at ball impact, go to 95 mm -hmm. and you'll see how much that 5% uh, different makes in um, allowing that golfer to retain their uh, ability to play on the tour, for example. And you know what happens with age, uh, the hips get a little stiffer, the shoulders get a little bit stiffer. So what do the golfers do? They put even more stress trying to get 100% at ball impact rather than 95. Right. Uh, or they're lifting too heavy, doing deep squats. The knees are starting to get a little bit cranky. And are the hips, because they're not Olympic lifters, they're golfers. Right. <laughs> their, their hip athleticism is internal external rotation. It's not the deep squat. Right. <laughs> but to do an Olympic lift, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, you're creating stress uh, and, and making uh, certain areas sore, which talk about the full uh, kinetic chain as we were earlier, which could take us to another myth, by the mm -hmm. way, I suppose. But uh, we have to consider that in looking at the full mechanism. So is that a little bit of a start That's on the perfect. adaptation? Well, I think let's, let's go there. Uh, so obviously, Stu, you're the low back guy. You don't look anything else, right? Oh, I wish they could come and... Uh, how about uh, let's do this. Let's start a little hip exam on you. Let's do it. Now, um, I'm going to predict, well, I, I, I can look at you and I know your name and I have a hypothesis as to where your genes came from. And I don't mean these things. <laughs> I mean where your uh, genetic pool uh, sure. originated from. Because if we go through Europe, uh, white Caucasian Europe, mm -hmm. uh, Poland, for example, has the highest rate of hip dysplasia. Why? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a congenitally shallow hip socket. Does every pole have hip dysplasia? No, it doesn't. All I'm doing is talking about a national average. But on average, they have that orthopedic disease. Where do the Olympic lifters come from? There. Eastern Europe. Yeah, yeah Ukraine, Bulgaria, Poland. And uh, there's subsets of that hip architecture as well. So it allows a deep squat with very little spine stress. Mm -hmm. Let's go to Western Europe and the epicenter of uh, FAI, femoral acetabular impingement, is in the Celtic nations, Normandy, France, Ireland, and Scotland. And you know what my name is. And uh, that's, uh, I'm hip replaced <laughs> with very deep hip sockets and uh, doing deep squats loaded, uh, etc. Now, I'm not going to blame that 100%, but uh, in any case, uh, there's an example of 
Uh, well, let, let's see on your hips if they are going to stress and put your back in any kind of a concern. So I know the camera's there. Let's just turn the table uh, like this. Perfect. And uh, Taylor, if I could get you to lay head up at uh, this end for us. Okay, I've already started my hip exam. I watched you get out of the chair and come around and get up on the table. So, very interesting. And uh, that's what I thought. Uh, as you got up, you went into a very full uh, deep squat position. Did you notice how he brought his knee up uh, very high? So, I'm just going to feel this now and I can drop that knee Oh, look at that. Fabulous. You could be an Olympic lifter. <laughs> now, my knee only comes to here because the Celtic hip is when I scour the femur around the socket, it's a square. And uh, so you're going to tell me you're Celtic now. No. <laughs> where, where, where's your genes from? Uh, this, is a, Eastern this, Europe. this is an Eastern European yeah. hip. Yep, my yep. mom's side was from Prussia. Isn't that fabulous? So look at that. Yeah. There, there's the Eastern uh, European hip. So that hip has the potential for a, an Olympic snatch. Knees together, fabulous. Uh, some people you'll see if that's where they're getting pressure on the labrum, and I can, that's their pain, and the pain is into the uh, uh, groin along the inguinal crease, that's a, a labrum uh, pain, as you know. Uh, then I can back off that, tweak the hip capsule, and see if that's causing the pain. So we can get very, very specific as to what's causing the pain here. But let's say you had a typical uh, Celtic hip. You would get to here, and at this point, there's no more room. I'm creating an impingement. And then at this point, if I push it any further, your pelvis rolls and I'm bossing the pelvis, which bosses the spine into pain. So if I do this and that causes your back pain and we're out of room here, I'll then say, let's try the antidote. Put your hands, palms down onto your low back. Ah, let's control that pelvis. I'm going to repeat the same probe. And if the person says, oh, my back pain is gone, I've just proven that I'm pushing the this, this stiff hip to the end range of motion, bossing your pelvis, bossing your spine into pain. I have to have a look at your hip. And uh, if, uh, now you got out of the chair with your knees fairly close together, mm -hmm. which suits your architecture. But uh, if I get out of the chair with my knees together with a very uh, deep hip socket, do you see, it's impossible for me to, not, and now if I was flexion intolerant, uh, I would have to go into my pain to get out of the chair. But if I had the architecture or the anatomy to spread my legs, get my feet underneath me, sniff a little bit of air and get appropriate stiffness to control that motion, lean forward and pull my hips through, zero pain because I didn't create the stress concentration on the thing that was yelping from the uh, uh, part that was uh, sensitized or herniated or whatever the case may be. So there might be an example of understanding, investigating that person's individual anatomy. Then we looked at their behavior all day long so we get an understanding of the exposure, how many times they are picking the scab on that uh, sensitized uh, mechanism. And then 
I now have an idea of what to do about it. So had that caused pain, um, had putting your hands under your low back, I would then know if I could control your lumbar curvature throughout the day, you would build a pain-free capacity. Yeah. I have a chance to get you back to American football or uh, whatever else uh, the, the, the uh, goal is. So there might be an example. Well, on the performance side of things, I've heard you uh, give cues to your the people that you're working with, with the interface, like with the foot in the ground and different cues for the foot to get better activation around the hip. So I think like you, you very much appreciate the kinetic chain and how important it is to work away from the site, maybe the, the target tissue, but we need full activation throughout the whole kinetic chain. Sure, yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, and I, I go back to uh, Shirley Sarman, and she had a student who's a professor in her own right now. Uh, Van Dillon. Pardon? Linda Van Dillon. No, no. Uh, this, uh, uh, um, I'm so sorry if she ever hears this podcast. Carol Lewis, pardon me. Okay. So Carol Lewis is a professor in Boston now. And uh, Kara's work with uh, Shirley was uh, seminal, really. Um, let's go back to uh, Yonda. You know, Yonda proposed the idea of the cross pelvis syndrome. Uh, but it was conjecture on his part. I, I, it was clinical observation, and he uh, thought and proposed this idea that back pain, hip pain, inhibits the gluteal muscles, sends more of the hip extensor share to the hamstrings, and it can facilitate the psoas. And we measured this in people uh, during hip uh, uh, therapeutic arthrograms. So I was working with an interventional radiologist and they would inject fluid under high pressure into the joint capsule. And then we would see how the person would then share the load between their glutes and their hamstrings. And there's no question that pain inhibited the gluteal muscles, like stepping on a stone, you unload that foot because it hurts. Mm. Um, but Kara's work uh, showed that when you extend the hip with the hamstrings, so you've got back pain or hip pain inhibiting the gluteals. What's the problem with that? The hamstrings, because of their vector, they push the femoral head into impingement in the front of the hip. But if you use the gluteal muscles to dominate the hip extension, it pulls the femoral head back out of impingement. So I might say to the person, so when you're squatting, fair enough. Now I might hold their knees uh, and restrict them from uh, a uh, b ducting, abducting, and uh, now we've activated the gluteals. Oh, my hip impingement is gone. I'm not feeling the pinch in my my hip anymore. So there would be a logic of suspecting the mechanism, testing the mechanism, and proving that that's the pain pathway. And now we're well on to a intervention to take that specific mechanism away. It allows us to regain athleticism without uh, triggering pain. Okay. And uh, I, know, I know who I'm talking to, by the way. I know you know all of this. And uh, you know you could do a bandit squat or all kinds of things, but there might be a start. What do you think about uh, a third misconception might be that, uh, that Stu McGill is overly bracing their patients. That's not exactly how the body moves and things like that. Oh. Yeah, I've heard that a lot from a student or a colleague will say, oh, this this person on the internet is taking a, a go at you about bracing and they're mocking me by saying, oh, you know, brace hard. Well, 
Bracing is, uh, we, with patients, uh, we'll use an analogy of a light bulb switch on and off versus a dimmer switch. And when people don't get it right, um, it's just bad coaching. And, and that's all I can say. I'm not apologizing for it, but someone has taken what we've tried to communicate and then they don't know it and they just coach it poorly. Um, brace your abdominals as if you're going to get punched in the sun. Wait a second. Wait a second. Let's tune it now. Could you stand up for me? So what I'm going to do, if you just want to face this way, Brett. Now, I'm going to um, see if you have a little bit of laxity in your spine. So just stand and relax. Don't uh, brace or fight me in any way. I'm going to hook your shoulder down with my armpit and I'm going to do a post. You know, like what we would do in an arm wrestle. We're posting down, so I'm going to post and hold and I'm going to pull your opposite hip across towards me so we can shear your spine. So very gently now, I've posted down, I'm just getting your hip and I'm just going to do that. So you feel that. Mm -hmm. Now, you weren't relaxed. You were bracing against me. I don't know if you know that. But uh, in any case, I just want you to relax. Now, let's assume that you say, oh, there's my pain. I just had that sick feeling in my back. Then I'll say, good. Push your fingers out, not forward. Uh-uh. Just out laterally if you can do that. Nice. Perfect. Now, keep that. Fight me just a little bit. And then if I recreate the probe and, and the pain is now gone, fantastic. We just defined the precise mechanism of your pain and we just defined the precise antidote to take the pain away. Now we refine it. Now let's search for the minimum amount of bracing that achieves no pain. Because there's a cost to bracing. Compressive. It is compressive. Mm -hmm. So we want to minimize the compressive cost, but eliminate pain and make you bulletproof and resilient. So there's a little bit of a start on the discussion of tuning the brace just right. Let's take another provocation. If, of course, I select patients for this next one. If I wouldn't do this with an osteoporotic grandmother. But nonetheless, just relax, go up on your toes and bounce on your heels. Did that trigger pain? And, and the person might say, yep. My, my right toe just went uh, nearly on fire. So you just triggered L5. Now, brace and repeat the bump. Now, you might say, oh, that made my pain worse because of the compressive cost. Or you might say, oh no, you just took my pain away. Good, I just found another way to make you robust. But now, we got a problem. You just braced and it made your pain worse. So I'm gonna say, let's try something else. Totally different way to create stiffness and engineer out that triggering micro-movement. You're old enough, you're like me to hitchhike. So, externally rotate, and now head up and pull down with your pec muscles and your lat muscles, centrate down. Just focus on that centration. Now repeat the heel drop. And if the person says, ah, oh, now my pain has gone away, there's an entirely different approach to engineer out a lack of stiffness that was causing the pain. And I know you know this. So. Anyway, there's just thought patterns. We keep probing and exploring the various, it's a quote one of my old mentors, Dave Winter, combinations and permutations. We're going to play jazz and we're gonna converge on the tuned stiffness that engineers out the micro movement that triggered the pain that right. we just explored and discovered. So we'll have many tests to 
stress the body into these micro movements and we get those from the conversations that we had upstairs and we come down here and test them and then we test various different ways to uh, engineer a bracing strategy then we have to coach it to the person and we have to coach it in a way that they can consume it well there's all different learning styles are they attention deficit or are they a professor and they want to know all the where's and how numbers yeah. yeah so you know how you coach it matters mm -hmm. um, but it's interesting another myth is uh, uh, you know, don't uh, explain to the person the science they'll obsess over it. Are you kidding? There are some personalities that will say, thank you. You're the first person who hasn't treated me like a five-year-old. Thank you for explaining that to me. That makes perfect sense. I now understand it. I now know why it's important to get these skills. And uh, if you want to go there, I think we have a pretty good track record of restoring careers in the full spectrum of sport from high spine mobility to high spine stability to uh, on-field play, uh, swimming pools, ski slopes, uh, combative sports rings, uh, baseball, I, field. baseball field for sure. Uh, I, I can't really think of a sport where we haven't been able to adapt their bodies back. Now, I'm not saying we are successful with everyone. Right, right away. of course. Of course not. Um, as Gray Cook says, not everything can be fixed. And, uh, <laughs> you know, these, uh, some, some people are permanently, uh, unfortunately. Could, uh, could we go a little bit more into the abdominal wall since we kind of brought it up? In, okay, well, we can do anything. Let's uh, do it. Well, I think like if we if we start like in the continuum of what we know about core stabilization, I think you played a huge role of what we know in the in the world in that in that area. And I think we had that paper from Paul Hodges that came out in '96 about you know people that have an episode of low back pain, they have a delay in the timing of certain muscles like transverse abdominis. And I think yourself and Kolicky were there to to kind of be a voice of reason at that time to understand that drawing the abdominal wall in may not be the thing that we want to be doing. And uh, so can you talk about like, is the research has kind of evolved on the abdominal wall, the role that you and your group have played and, and others? And maybe what got you to that conclusion that drawing in wasn't, wasn't the right? Well, we were one of the first to be able to measure spine stability. And uh, so I just go over and get this model here, uh, if I may. Uh, let me start with two concepts of uh, spine stability. So here is a spine, which is a flexible rod, and this model is designed to add compression down the spine, and compression to a joint is stabilizing. So if I reduce the compression, uh, obviously it's stable, it returns back to its unperturbed state, but if I take away some of the compression, it bends and buckles very quickly. Now your spine, if we were to take it out of you, bends and buckles very quickly, uh, five pounds or just a few kilos, and it will uh, become unstable and, and collapse. So can you imagine putting guy wires on this rod in different directions, but then pull the rod, the, the, the wires close to the base? 
it wouldn't be very stable. But if I could make the wires have a bigger base in different directions down to the ground. Uh, so external oblique, internal oblique, latissimus dorsi, the rib cage itself, um, uh, uh, psoas would be a, a, another one. Uh, we can talk about rectus and how when we measure it function in people, it is not a flexor of the spine per se. I, I can certainly get into that if you like. It's very much part of the composite for spine stability. But nonetheless, you can see that drawing the guy wires closer would allow this to buckle at a lower load. And that's exactly what we would measure when we measured the stability index level by level. So it never made sense to draw in the muscles. Um, uh, in your experience with all the top strong people that you've worked with, which is extensive, no one in that group of people would ever choose to do that. I think. Oh, they would be, laugh. Yeah. But what, we have to suck our balls up and then squat a hundred kilo. <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> we're we're pushing out uh, in, into the belt. But then I could do a very simple demonstration. Say so I was with a group of uh, physios, and I would just with one finger, I say, suck in your abdominal wall. Now stand up. And, and very difficult to do. But then I said, all right, now stiffen down, get tight. And now it's that tightness. See, the hips, you, you can't push a rope. Your body through this linkage must push stone to get an effect. So when you stiffen the body, it then allows the hips to push. And that's just, again, athletic linkage 101. Uh, you, you can't push into stuff, stuff, softness. You always have to push into stiffness. So that's what an athlete is doing in organizing the strength pulses and stiffness pulses through the body in any athletic move. Um, anyway, uh, then another type of spine instability. This is Euler buckling stability, but this is injury stability to a very specific joint. So these models are built by uh, Jerome Fryer at uh, dynamicdiscs.com. And Jerome started by taking the injuries that we would document in the lab and clinic, and he built these beautiful biofidelic models. So here is a model. This disc is normal. This disc is normal, but L4-5 has been damaged uh, either through a little bit of a disc bulge or an implate fracture or whatever, but it's lost its turgor, it's lost its stiffness. Now I'm going to just apply a general perturbing torque. Do you see how the majority of the motion is occurring at the joint that's lost its controlling stiffness? So the character of pain, and you can see in terms of working, look at the facet joints working at that level. So you can predict that in this person's spine, for now, they will have pain. Yes, it's from, a, from a, a disc that has lost its normal function, but it is now firing off pain throughout the body in differing patterns. So one day the right toe is asleep, the next day they have left hamstring, the next day they have right low back pain. It's migrating as these micro movements, or they wake up in the morning and they might have been uh, in that particular confirmation through the night and they wake up with a very specific pain in a certain location. They wake up the next day on the other side and it's a different pain pattern. So this is the pain pattern that you recognize as having to do with a loss of stiffness due to injury at a single joint, or it might be two, but anyway, you get the point. How do you take away the symptom? You can try drawing in and then we create the same provocation of a motion of uh, a load or a posture and see if we took the pain away 
Now we make the stiffening pattern more robust. We, we gave a, a thoracic post when we worked with you a few minutes ago. We tried an abdominal brace. We're searching for a combination that we can prove will now engineer out that uh, movement. So you'll hear coaches yell to their athletes in many different sports, stay tight, stay tight. Uh, so do you see there is uh, two different types of instability and we will converge on the bracing that uh, is successful in engineering out the pain trigger. Can I say one more thing yeah, that's so important and it has to do with performance. Mm -hmm. The brain has a fuse box uh, and we measure this in uh, particularly the strong athletes and I mentioned this earlier. Um, if the brain perceives this kind of instability, if the brain perceives in the knee, so you can do a drawer test on the knee to very precisely define that an anterior posterior shear or laxity indicates knee damage. It's lost its stiffness. So the spine is exactly the same way. If the brain feels the knee has now come out of conformation, the knee buckles. The brain had a fuse box and shut down the neural drive to that knee. The brain does exactly the same thing to the spine. So when the person says, I bent forward and I collapsed to my knees, or I was running, I cut and turned, and I just fell to my knees, or I was playing in the NHL, I went into the corner, the guy got me up against the boards, hip went this way, shoulder went that way, I collapsed to the ice. The brain shut it down. Mm -hmm. Or in strong men, we see this all the time. As soon as they lose that staying tight, and they experience that little micro-movement because of the existing damage, the brain shuts it down and they've lost their strength and they've lost the event. So the event wasn't one of strength in as much as it was one of disciplined endurance and maintenance of staying tight. Mm -hmm. See the difference? Yeah. yeah. So that's all part and parcel with this big conversation on the abdominals and stability and... Uh, uh, everything else. So. How do you get the brain to reconcile to do the right amount of force in the brace for the activity that they're doing? Obviously, if we're powerlifting, we're we're braced 100% or close to it. And then like these lower level activities where we'd have less of a brace, what are some of the verbiage you use to teach your patients? And uh, I, think, I think it's just a difficult concept to get the patient to kind of understand that. Oh, you gave me so much there to unpack. But these models really help some kinds of athletes. As I said, some athletes just see that and say, oh, I get it. I now know precisely what I have to do. So I'm going to practice getting rid of my pain. Right. Now I know how to do it. I can dial it in. Some people are clueless. You know this, Brett. They just, uh, they, they really struggle with body awareness. So we may have to go right back to Physio 101, giving them body position awareness. Right. You know, get out the uh, uh, gym ball and can you sit on a gym ball and get right back to a neutral spine and now you're resilient. Or, oh yeah, there's my pain. Okay, stiffen it up. So, so you teach them over and over on, uh, how, how to converge on uh, that robustness that we're looking for. But the answer is I, I don't have a single answer. It's what the assessment shows you. It's what the person shows you in the way they learn.
And with bracing coming at a cost to uh, compression, we've had, uh, I think Granada and Morasa's paper kind of showing that a brace is definitely going to stabilize, but then it, it also comes with uh, compression, might lead to modic change of the vertebrae, in-plane issues, things like that. So then can we be overbraced? Do we need to, you know, do we have to have that, that conversation? Yeah, of course you can be overbraced, and some people do. There are people who are walking around like this, and they're just going for a walk. Now, where did that come from? It either came from someone who doesn't understand our work, and they, they taught them the brace, not giving them the nuances of bracing as something that has to be tuned. Right. But zero brace when they walk, they're on the verge of triggering all the time. They hit a little bit of an undulation in the ground or step in a slight pothole on the road and, and they're in big trouble. So it's a matter of them converging on, on the right amount. But of course, too much bracing. Uh, let's go into the, the performance world. I'm going to be a pogo stick. Now, what am I doing? I'm stiffening my calf muscles. If I over-stiffen them, I can't jump. And if I don't stiffen them enough, nothing works. So to tune the spring, to optimize storage and recovery of elastic energy comes at a compressive cost, there's no question. But when I get that right, now if I don't have the skeletal ability to bear that compressive load, we're not there yet. We're, we have to dial back now their training to uh, build a training capacity. How do you unload the spine of compression? Practice spine hygiene. Throughout the day, be nice to your spine so that when we do train it, you have some capacity now that it isn't, hasn't been, the scab hasn't picked all day, day long. It's had a chance to rest. Or we might start the training session, just lay on your tummy and breathe for five minutes. Give us a tiny little bit of training capacity to start tuning where that spring should be. What do you think on the tiny component of the activation of these deeper muscles that we're talking about? Obviously, Paul's work kind of uh, exposed that there might be a motor control aspect to this to where uh, people who have back pain, they have a, they have a delay in the activation. And um, if you do believe this to be like a motor control issue, is, do we need to be, how do we train that to the patients? Meaning like, do we get it back to where it's subcortical, subconscious, neurologic feed forward to where you don't have to think about it, you're moving your arm and it's already happening for you? Or in the beginning of rehab, do we have to be thinking about that with it eventually, hopefully getting right as the brain starts to scramble and, and understand these thoughts? Can I give you an example? Oh, I'd love you to. Okay. Could you stand up? Yep. Now, I want you to, well, just turn a little bit here. Sorry, Taylor. I'm, nope, nope, I'm here. Way. Could you just hold your hand like this, Brett? And now, would you push force into my hand? Good. And release it. Okay. So, what I felt in you was that before you exerted force on my hand, you already prepared home base. So, you were firing a cannon from a battleship, not from a canoe. Mm -hmm. Right? So, there's my test right away. Now, if nothing happened here first and you started to push and your shoulders started to turn you started to twist up your spine and you went into pain i'm not caring about a delay in transverse abdominis or anything we got a much bigger problem and when i look at uh the studies after paul's that looked at uh different uh 
groups. I, I know he did one on, on rowers at Yale University. For example, those who had back pain, yeah, they had uh, perturbed transverse abdominis, but also latissimus dorsi, arachnospinae. In other words, everything gets perturbed with pain. Uh, and scientists find what they look for. So if you look for something going on in transverse abdominis, you'll probably find it. If you look for something going on in the lats, you'll probably find it. So my point is, look at everything right. uh, in those type of studies, and uh, you'll get a better view and appreciation for how widespread the things that are perturbed really are. Mm -hmm. So there's a little bit of a start, but there might be just a quick little test. Um, I'm not worried about a... A, a 30 second, a nanosecond de yeah. delay uh, in something as gross as what I just tested and if you don't have that right but uh, is there really a delay in just transverse or is it the delay widespread my opinion is it's a pretty widespread uh, dysfunction shall yeah. we say so your second question was do people have to think about it when you work with a great athlete and you uh, work with them in a new skill. So one of the greatest athletes in that regard is the mixed martial artist because they're always learning. They have such great skills, but they're always learning a new submission move or, and jujitsu never ends. There's always a new thing to yeah. learn, but it's really interesting to watch the very accomplished uh, athlete who's an MMA uh, athlete. They practice over and over and over again that movement perfection. So what they're doing is creating a muscle memory, or what in neurology we call it a engram. Yeah, so they're perfecting the engram. Then they increase the speed of the engram, and then they play with the muscular preparation and expressing that engram. And if you do that often enough, it becomes the default pattern. So now we're at the level. You can argue subcortical. I don't even know what that. I don't worry about any of that stuff. All I know is I'm trying to create a muscle memory and a default movement pattern. So when I watch them come in now, they're moving in a way that doesn't allow that unstabilized or unstiffened previous pain mechanism to manifest. What are the? So you, you treat them like a robot like a great athlete does, repeating the movement, and then it becomes a default pattern. Now we're... In your opinion, Stu, what are the differences? Like, obviously, if we're deadlifting, we're basically closing our glottis, creating a valsalva, and we have this big brace here, versus like if I'm walking where I'm needing to basically counter-rotate my ribcage against my pelvis, or like in the golf swing where there is a little bit of an X factor, those moments where you're disconnecting your rib cage from your pelvis, what do you feel like the abdominal wall is doing in those moments? Because you're not, in those examples, you're not, you're not having that brace there. So what do you feel is occurring there for the stabilization? Well, I've measured it. So <clears throat> it sounds strange. I don't have to feel it. I've, I've measured it. And the answer is it's a full spectrum. Right. So in some people, it really is an elastic phenomenon. And great golfers are great golfers for a reason. Some of them really haven't had much coaching. They just were a natural at it. And they had the stiffness, which is the passive elastic uh, element. They load that passive spring and then they unload it. But to get the spring to unload, this is an athlete. This is a great athlete. See the difference? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now I've tuned the spring and I add a muscular pulse. 
So to uncork stored elastic energy out of your body, you know, how, how is it that someone can throw a football almost the length of a football field? And I've caught the football from an NFL quarterback. It is so mind-boggling that a guy can, my hands burn after it. It's ungodly. And they make it look so easy. Spring number one, spring number two, spring number three. Put those three springs together elastically with a well-timed muscle pulse, and they've just created a slingshot. And they make it look easy. So it's timing, it's too much bracing, makes too much stiffness and it slows down. Uh, another example I can give you where we really well documented this in six uh, MMA fighters in the UFC. So these are top mixed martial arts and I think two or maybe even three of them fought for the weight division title at some point in their career. So these are no slouches. Every single one of them didn't hit you with muscle. So the guys, don't worry, but the guys with big muscles, they, ooh, they push their punches. When we measure the bracing, it's too much. It's stiff and it's slow and the impact is spread out over time. The guys who you want to look out for are the ones who don't look incredibly well muscled, but they double pulse. Pulse number one, boom, just to get it moving. Or if it's a leg strike, pulse number one, their foot hasn't even left the ground yet. It's <clears throat> pulse, shut. And then they relax. As the closing velocity increases from the foot to the opponent, no muscle activation. And then when the foot hits the opponent, they be, turn into granite, second pulse. So it's a boom, boom. It's called boom, boom neurology. And... Uh, when they turn themselves to granite, there's me hitting you. Mm -hmm. You feel the difference? That was stiffened all behind it. So what creates a faster strike, what creates a harder strike is the ability of the athlete to turn their muscles on, off, and on. Yeah. That's the thing. Now, how many clinicians coach speed of contraction and speed of relaxation next to zero right it's really difficult to to teach it's a hard concept yeah. yeah so you know we'll start athletes i might say to you try to stand up Brett. and uh just uh, this is well let's put it like that so it's probably going to fall put your hands over the bar like no no don't just hands over it like this and i'm going to drop the bar and you're going to catch it before it falls to the see so you're supposed to catch that uh, i would watch my eyes okay but i'm going to put it right there and then you got to catch it now do you think that strength training getting stronger and everything else is going to help you to catch that no what we'll do it is relaxation training and pulse training so i might start with an athlete completely relax hover hands out of your pockets just let your ears hover over your shoulders shoulders over your hips jazz knees take all attention out now out of that position of quietness brett now you can look at me i just want you to pulse somewhere in your body like that yeah nice now that was on and off quite quickly that was very very good because most people are quick on and then they can't let it go so it's boom you know but do you know what i mean it, yeah. it is and you can even hear them you know when you're at the fights right. you hear the guttural effusion you hear the pulsing it's magnificent and then 
do, do you remember the old kung fu movies, Grasshopper? When you can grab the pebble from my hand, you can leave the Shaolin Temple. You will be ready. <laughs> and that was all exactly what I'm talking about. So we might start with manual speed, <clears throat> just that, or I might say, jump up on the box. And they jump up on the box, but I don't want to hear you. Land like a cat. Complete relaxation. As you, but I want your lifting form to be perfect in the snatch as you come in. Get that right. And then I want to hear your foot land hard. <clears throat> now I'm getting a pulse fly through the air, relax and pulse in the snatch, catching the bar. So there's lots of little tricks that we use to keep coaching the speed at which the muscles contract and relax. And then I give it context. So if it's to catch an Olympic bar, you pull, 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 you pulse. And then from here on in, you can't pull anymore. This is 1G going down and you've got to snap onto that. And if you've got residual stiffness in your body, you'll miss the lift. Doesn't matter how strong you are. You got to relax faster. When we measure, when we measured those MMA athletes, all top UFC caliber, they relaxed their muscles during pulsing exercises six times faster than the graduate students currently in our laboratory at the time. Six times. It's, they're special people. Great athletes are off the chart. And one of the joys of my life is I've been able to play with them and feel what it's like to put on some protective gear and get in the ring or the cage yeah. and, and just let them go 5% on me. Just 5%. Now, do you feel like they're yeah. genetically gifted at pulsing or do they have something to learn from you about how to pulse or does it depend on the case or well, does a pulse is what, is that what got them to where they, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you, if you don't have it, I, I will say of all of the base physiological athleticisms like physiological, biomechanical, neurological, hormonal, all of these kinds of things, th th that's a gift from God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So some of them are trainable, of course, but let me ask you a question. A Greyhound is a dog and a St. Bernard is a dog. Could you train a St. Bernard to win at the Greyhound track? <laughs> No. Okay. <laughs> so there's my point. Yeah. So when you look at the architecture or the anatomy of people, and then you measure their base neurology, some people are tortoises. It's right. just, that's what God gave You've them. Got to row with the orchard born with. Yeah. And then some people are so explosive, but they can do it twice and then they're fatigued. <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, you, you, you watch a guy like uh, Greg Jackson. I don't know if you, if you know Greg Jackson, the great coach of, uh, in uh, MMA. And fighters will hire him to review their athleticisms and then the athleticism of the opponent, and then he designs the fight. So he says, all right, well, you're, you, you're, you're fighting a highly explosive uh, fighter. You got to weather the storm. <laughs> Let yeah. him punch him out, you, you, uh, himself out. You got to weather the storm, and then round two, you're going to have your way with him. Right. And you know, uh, but if you think you're going to go toe to toe with that guy in the first round, the chances are not in your favor. So it's it's matching. So there's an example of it's it's mano on mano. It's one man against another man. It's raw, no equipment. I mean, you know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. Like uh, 
the equipment advantages aren't very uh, important in MMA. It's it's one man's skill against another, and uh, so that's the yeah, expertise of a guy like uh, Greg Jackson and so many of the other great coaches as well. In the strong people you've worked with, do you think it's safe to say that one of their gifts to the world is their ability to push their muscles out the hardest? Is that like one thing they're all going to have in common? I don't know if I've ever really thought of that. I will say all of them have the ability to get tight. Um, I, I don't want to change the topic and avoid the question, but I don't know if I can say anything more yeah. than that. But what all of them have the ability for is what we call density of neural drive. So uh, uh, if, if we arm wrestled, and I used to do this uh, when I was a professor, uh, I, I would uh, say a student was just bothering me. They wouldn't <laughs> shut up and they'd be tired. And it was even better if they were a big football player or something. And I'd say, come on down to the front. And, and I'd, we'd have a class now on the mechanics of arm wrestling. But talk about a psychosocial, biopsychosocial <laughs> lesson. I used every dirty trick in the book to beat them. And I would lose on occasion, but not very often. And I'm just a skinny old man, so it was quite, <laughs> yeah. quite an interesting. But one of the things I did was to densify my own neural drive, and they didn't know how to do it. Even though they were so much stronger, they could bench press and squat way more than I could. But they didn't know how to pull that out of their body. And uh, I, I can talk for, I can give quite a big lecture on how to densify neural drive. How plastic? That, that, that is what, to answer your question that you asked me earlier, that's the most important part that these strong men have. That, yes, I know they train their strength and they're massive beasts, but they, there's lots of massive beasts who, I've talked to them on days that they can't get that density of thought going, they lose. I, I have a guy who is a world record power lifter and uh, there are some days when he just can't get in the mental zone and create that firestorm of that strength thought because mm. strength is a thought, right? Right. And then he translates that thought into the pulse trains to the muscles to create the strength and he just couldn't get his brain to, I mean, you're committing murder on your own body. Right. <laughs> Right? You've got to will your body to do something that the fuse boxes are saying it doesn't want to do. And you have to go to a very, no, I, I use a dark place. Most of them go to a very, very dark place. Angry place. Very, yeah, it's more than angry. It, it's, it's homicidal, suicidal. You have to be willing to kill. Or, you, you know, Bill Kazmaier? Well, oh, I, know, I don't know him, but I know who he is, of course. Bill Oh, you you got to meet him. He Bill is is such um, such just a fabulous depth of personality in in every respect. Bill is one of the few I know that doesn't create that rage of density. He does it, and it's amazing to watch. He says, "I, I you know, he's a very sort of religious, spiritual yeah, guy, yeah. and he feels the power of the Lord." And he says, "I I see the lightness." <laughs> And you can watch him, and and uh, he feels the power of the Lord invading his body, and he starts to get little sweat beads. Then he goes goose pimply, and he's able to create that ability in his body and that discipline of such dense thought to to do the feats of strength that he does and has done throughout.
his career. But he's the only guy that I know of that can go to the lightness when everyone else goes to the darkness. How much plasticity is there in this densification of neural drive? I mean, like, if, if someone's not great at it, we can... Or is it, do you feel like that's more like a genetic piece? Or a little bit of both? Or? Can I do a demo? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I, I think I can coach anyone to get stronger almost immediately. So, shake my hand. And you've seen me do this before. Yeah. Squeeze my hand as hard as you can. And most guys will do exactly what you did. You grit your teeth and you use your arm and you try and squeeze as hard as you can. Uh, pretty bad. So, <laughs> but you know all of it. Yes. So we're going to start. I want you to stomp and root into the ground just a little bit and hook your toes and your heels into the ground. And I'm going to boss you around a little bit. And I need you to get that root into the ground. On your off side, close and squeeze. Now, uh, head up. Push your tongue hard to the roof. Hard to the roof of the mouth. Now look at my face. I'm grimacing down. Look at my neck. Stiff stable. Centrate, post down, I know who I'm talking to. Hard, hard, now. Focus. Every single finger start to squeeze my hand. This one is more down here. This one's not, little finger. It's not working yet. There, now it is. So do you see how you had to coach the manual strength and the biggest strength is through here, the lobster grip. So establish that. Then wrap every finger. And then I'm going to do all this sort of nasty, dirty stuff. I'm going to creep your thumb and get an advantage. And so that's how I used to win arm wrestling. <laughs> and then I'd get them. I'd start to creep their thumb on them. And I'd get ready to bust their thumb. And then I'd paralyze the back of their hand. And then I'd get them to laugh. Just give me a little smile. I'd break the density of the neural drive and out of my core. Bam. <laughs> so somebody's uh, got to play dirty. Yeah. Yeah. I was the professor. Right. I, I wasn't this. I had to beat them with uh, wisdom, knowing how to create strength. Yeah, and how to how to steal their strength. So then, uh, let's take a geriatric patient who's got low back pain, and right. we're teaching them how to. I mean, how does that differ for you know that, or how do you start with that patient? It's huge. It's huge. I, I, I'm. I get so disheartened when a physio. I'll, I'll say. Uh, Okay, let's give an athletic example. Oh, McGill, I don't work with athletes. I work with old people. I don't want to know this stuff. And I say, that's why you're not a master. I don't say this to them, but <laughs> what I think is that's why you'll always be a substandard clinician. Hmm. Why does Honda, as a car manufacturer, race F1 race cars? Well, it's good advertising. They don't anymore, by the way. They dropped it last year, I think. But what they learn in the competitive arena of F1 cars, they can put in the gear change technology for a Honda Civic. So what they learn at the ultimate of automotive athleticism, they apply to life. That's why we love working with athletes and then working with old people because they are losing their base athleticism. Mm. We've got to pull everything out, every dirty trick that we learn from the athletes. So I'll give you an example. Let me sit on this stool. And I've told this story a hundred times. Uh, on occasion, uh, I'm asked by a medical school would I come in and see patients in front of their medical staff. And uh, I was just thinking if you were maybe there at this one, but yeah, I don't think you were. And I was at this hospital, and they brought out this older woman, maybe 70 years old, 
doesn't sound so old anymore, but anyway. <laughs> and uh, she said, I, I said, okay, well, well, tell me your story. And she didn't say anything about her back pain. She said, um, the physio says I have to leave my home because when I get off the toilet, she's afraid I'm going to fall down and no one will find me and I have to go into a patient care facility. I have to leave my home. She started to cry. And uh, I said, really? Could someone bring a stool out onto the stage? So they brought out a stool and I said, have a seat, pretend that's the toilet. And very incompetently, you know, she kind of flopped onto the, the chair and she sat like this, typical uh, defeated, victimized posture of someone who's losing their life. This is it. Go to the clinical psychology book of uh, a depressed mental state. It's not, hey, I'm depressed. <laughs> it is very much inflection. This isn't okay to express your depression. I'm wanting her to own herself, own her world, and get her mojo back. Anyway, so I, I said, could you stand up? And she had no idea. <laughs> she's been with a physio who told her she has to leave her home. And she's falling into the floor. Anyway. So I said, did you ever play baseball? She looked at me. She said, yeah, I, I did, 65 years ago. I said, good. Mirror me. Play shortstop. Do this. And I cleaned her up a little bit. I pushed her shoulders down and I got her to lift her tail or stick your bum out. She thought that was funny. And then I said, now, don't lift with your back. Pull your hips through. She started to fall back. And I said, oh, be a leaning tower. Push your toes down and lean forward just a little bit. Now, pull your hips through and drag your hands up. Do you know I'd never said another thing? And you could see her face processing. She did this. And I said, sit on the toilet, same pattern. And then I said, now. And right away her knees went together. I said, spread your knees apart. Get your feet underneath you. Suck a little bit of air. Now do everything I just taught you. I didn't say anything more. She did it again. And she started to smile and I said, what's up with you? And she says, uh, I don't have to leave my home, do I? And I said, you certainly do not. There were people crying in the audience. Medical people who'd never seen basic elite athletic skill talk to an old person before. I taught her weightlifting one-on-one. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Yeah, that's perfect. Okay. Love it. <laughs> Love it. So, yes, uh, a body is a body. Right. And a body loses, as we are all finding out now, unfortunately, abilities. So you see here, balance platforms. I work on my balance. <clears throat> I work on grip strength. It's still not too bad. I work on hip power so I can recover from a stumble, which I'm doing more and more in the woods of right. these days. And uh, uh, I strategically train all following lessons that I've learned from the great athletes.
And you became a legend for naming three specific exercises, the big three. And I think the story goes, Craig Liebenson was the one who might have named them for you. I don't know. But anyways. Well, he, he called them the big, the big three. three. Yeah. So we have, uh, we have the side bridge. We have the bird dog, the modified curl up. As the years have gone on, are you still using the, those family of exercises quite a bit? Or is it, is it changed? Or, or how are you utilizing those original exercises? Still doing. Yeah. Yeah, the body requires a home base of stiffness. Consider a, another linkage that you'll be familiar with, a backhoe. So a backhoe is a tractor with an arm that digs in the ground. Now, don't put down the stabilizers. Just sit in your cab, turn your seat around, and dig some earth. What's going to happen to the Not cab? Good. Well, it's going to pull the cab all right. over the place. So you stabilize the proximal part of the tractor by putting down the stabilizers, lifting the back wheels off the ground, and now you can dig earth very athletically. Mm -hmm. um, I can go through all kinds of maneuvers with you that if you don't have a home base of stiffness, uh, you will be incompetent, weak, and going to pain. Right. So if I can stiffen up proximally, all of a sudden, I can push you rather than pushing myself away into collapse. Uh -huh. I mean, that's, that's pretty, you know, it's non-negotiable. Right. So you can't live in a linkage without, pro if I want to wiggle my finger and I didn't stiffen my wrist, I couldn't do that. I'd be... So it's the law of a mechanical linkage. You must stiffen proximally to get distal athleticism. And do you think now, that... Can I just... Yeah, I, I was, That was only the lead up. That was my price. So the question is... What is the most effective way to guarantee proximal stability? Guarantee it in a way that conserves the spine. So uh, for years, we measured all different ways. Uh, you know, I would go out and work with all my fantastic clinical friends and borrow their exercises, bring them back to the laboratory, measure the stability. Um, but in terms of maximizing stability, which is three-dimensional stiffness, in a spine-conserving way, you had to do it with the big three. Right. It's not the Paloff press, it's not... Uh, now, from there, you can work into uh, variants of push-ups and TRX rows and... Stir the pot. Uh, yeah, stir the yeah. pot. Um, and then... You know, I think the first time I did that slam ball overhead helicopter thing, that was with GSP. Yeah, yeah I remember you telling that story. Yeah, to get the pulsing going and the rotational. Uh, and, and by the way, he never, as far as I know, had back pain. Uh, he was just gracious enough to allow me to study his magnificent athleticism. <laughs> Are you bought in? Because originally, um, and we even used to have in our office where we'd have like that 60 degree plank where we test right. like the anterior wall and then the Sorensen's test to check right. the extensors. And then the, you know, you do the side bridge endurance test to see like, do you still assess that out to determine how you would specifically use one of those three exercises? Or do you kind of feel now at this point that if you know somebody needs to you know, be stabilized, then you just kind of go right to the exercise. Yeah, I, I'm at the point now where I can prescribe a program with my best guess and I, I, I wouldn't test it. What the testing was good for was for population studies. Uh -huh. So I know, for example, uh, in, the, uh, in the NHL, I remember one year 
uh, when we were surveilling injuries, there were something like five or six sportsman's hernias. So a little tear in the abdominal sure. wall. Do you know that every single one of those guys who got that, when we went back and looked at their scores in side plank, they were less than 60 seconds. Hmm. What is an NHL hockey player doing who can't hold the side plank 60 seconds? That's how That's my insane. view yeah. is what they were poorly trained. Someone didn't build their... So we know these kinds of things. If you take a generic, non-specific back pain people, if you can't hold a side plank 60 seconds, you're much more likely to go into standing back pain, even if you're young, not stenosis. Or... So there's a lot of resilience to be gained if you can hold the side plank 60 seconds. We can look at Olympic rowers, which is another uh, population that we've studied. Um, if you hold, I think it's, uh, don't quote me on this because I'm going by memory, it's something like 120 seconds. But if you can hold longer than three minutes, that's a problem. So too much is an imbalance. Moderation. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So it's, again, we go right back to the tuning. And we used to have discussions at CIHP and we would get athletes in there, as you know, like fabulous hockey players and whatnot. And how come that guy, because we've just tested and worked with him, has the fastest slap shot in the NHL. He's certainly not the strongest that we've seen. He's, uh, you know, just, just mid and, uh, you know, we would have this discussion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're in balance. They're in balance. Their timing is perfect. Mm -hmm. their, their pulsing is perfect. Everything is just in balance, and that's where that performance came from. They expressed a beautiful balance. Too much stiffness, they slow down, not enough. They leak energy through the proximal leak in their linkage. Right. It was perfect. Right. So And I think I mean the you know, I mean this is obvious, but those exercises are so wonderful because they're not taking the spine through a gross range of motion. So you know, we're not harming the disc and the ligaments around the spine, but we're getting massive activation of the muscles around. That's what makes those exercises so wonderful, I think. Well, I'm going to throw a fly in the ointment there, but if you want more neuromuscular recruitment of the compartments, if you bend the spine, you can get that. But if the person has a pain history or a disc history, that would not be a wise thing to do. Right. So I'm not saying there's not a time and a place for that. If we had a scoliosis person, for example, and we had to even up the neuromuscular compartments both sides, we might take them through a spine range of movement. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Sure. So, oh, McGill just studies pig spines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, then you had uh, advancements from all those exercises. You could train speed, tempo. I mean, there's all different things that could be done with those simple right. exercises. It, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's why I wrote those different books from one book's for a pained person, the next person is to okay, there's a pain free foundation. Now we gotta get back to training a little bit and enjoying life. Uh -huh. So here are some of the thoughts on moving into speed, uh expression of that athleticism to be easier on your body and harder on the sport. <laughs> right. Might, might be an opponent, might be a basketball, or <laughs> might be a race car. Yeah, yeah. I was working with a coach, not a not an athlete, but a coach of F1 race car drivers a little while ago, and boy, did he open my eyes 
to uh, the rigors of uh, handling G-forces. Oh, that sport is insane. It really is, yeah. People don't, until you've been to an F1 race, or even a NASCAR race, Mm -hmm. oh my goodness, to realize what those machines do. It is crazy. I have, uh, you'll see just outside the door, a testimonial from the uh, F-35 pilot. Those are insane airplanes. (laughs) Probably the most athletic airplane right now. And uh, have you seen Top Gun? Oh yeah, yeah. The new one, or the, yeah, the yeah, new one. Uh-huh. So uh, this guy pulls nine G's. Wow. If you can get your head around nine G's, if you can imagine what that is. So snowmobiling, <laughs> when we go, we find hills we that we rocks. can go over that we hit zero G on. Yeah. So, so the radius of curvature plus our speed yeah. means you're weightless, wow. and you got to knee clamp into the sled and stiffen into it. Oh yeah, because uh, you don't want to come off at hundred mile an hour. Uh, but that's so much fun to get that feeling. That feeling, yeah. yeah over a the top of a hill or something. No. Anyway, uh, why am I telling you that? Oh, because that's only one G. Now go times nine. Okay. <laughs> but you know, you see Tom Cruise in that movie to get over up over the yeah. hill, and then you've got to dip down as fast as you 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 can. And uh, I told you, my wife's in flight school right now, and you <laughs> learn the dynamics of why that's so. <laughs> almost impossible to do but uh, uh, nine G's anyway um, uh, now you've got a disc herniation in an airplane seat that has no lumbar support no posture uh, ability to unload the stresses on that disc now go pull nine G's and now tell me posture doesn't matter <laughs> right so uh, there's a, a case for and then what goes on in a race car uh, Posture is huge. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Yeah. Put yourself in an awkward posture and take three Gs. Stu, do you think it's possible to be able to predict future injuries in athletes? Because there's kind of a thought in in our world that uh, you know the only way to predict a future injury is your previous injuries that you've had. Do you feel that it's possible for us to you know? Uh, make an assumption on what could possibly be happening downstream by doing a certain assessment or questionnaire or whatever it might be? Uh, I now have data to say yes. I didn't have it before. So if you're going with your first suggestion, the only way to predict future injuries to look at past history, that means they already have to have had their first injury. Right. So the key is, can you predict the first injury? Can I tell you a little story yeah. on that? And I'm afraid uh, this is still uh, embargoed because it's not uh, published yet. But uh, uh, I was working with one professional team and I remember being at training camp with the uh, medical staff and we were just talking and watching the players play on the on, on the I won't tell you whether it was the arena or the court or whatever but it was on, <laughs> the, on the, the pitch on the field of play and uh, we just said oh uh, gosh look at that I'll, I'll bet you he has a knee injury I'll bet you he has a back injury and 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 really I said all right we're making a lot of bets here I want everybody Here's a piece of paper. Write down who's going to get hurt and what the injury is going to be. And we're going to put it in an envelope. It's going into your desk under a lock and key. And we're going to get that out at the end of the season. And we're going to see who has the ability, if any of us, to predict injury. You know, most of us were right. And it was uncanny how many of the senior guys picked the same athletes to have the same injury. And they were right. 
So at that point, I said, all right, let's invest in a study. So we did a fairly big study. It was a longitudinal study. And uh, we got the money to test every single player for about half a day. So there were well over 200 athletes in this uh, organization. So it was a big study, a lot of money, a lot of effort went into it. And they did a variety of movement tests. Breathing mechanics would be one, the clap test for um, uh, landing uh, from a jump and, and looking at knee collapse and all, all these, you know, frontal plane uh, knee uh, kinematics on landing, sagittal plane spine mechanics, and etc. Known injury markers. And then uh, we let the players play the season. Didn't do anything else with the data. And then we tracked the injuries. So with about three quarters of the players, you take who got injured, what their scores were, and you put it into a statistical weighing machine. It's called LASSO, L-A-S-S-O. And it creates the model of this cluster of scores on that particular test. When combined with this one here, you can predict injury. Wow. Now, the last quarter of the players become your test group. Now you've created the predictive model of what variables matter. Go test it on the next group to see if it's valid. Hmm. We were able to predict just over 80% of the players and their injuries. Can you believe that? Yeah, and we were uh, able to predict just under 80% of the players who didn't get hurt, which is also valuable information. That's huge. Yeah. So who's resilient and who's open for, for injury? Uh, so that's why I say uh, I now have the data uh, that, and that's not the only study that, that we've done that way, uh, by the way. But uh, this, this will be the next big one on uh, can you predict injury from well-selected scores and to let the cat out of the bag, and I know this won't surprise either of you, um, core control with hip mobility and uh, certain standards set on body asymmetry makes it resilient. Those are kind of the big hitters. Yes, yeah. and, and that, that goes sport to sport. Mm -hmm. The great ones use their hips. The ones who aren't so great use their backs. And uh, by the way, we did that with, uh, uh, now this was a different type of study, but uh, we had men who chrome car bumpers. So all day long, they're picking up 70 pound car bumpers. Right. And uh, you know, 30 kilo. And uh, we had another group who climb hydro poles, hydro linemen. And then uh, we looked at their work history and who had repeated episodes of back pain sufficient to cause time off work versus those who didn't. And then we did a full battery of their fitness profile. Do you think the ones who never had a back injury were stronger in their back? Because there's a lot of people who say, oh, well, you've got back pain, we're going to give you back strengthening exercises to do. Do you think having a strong back is prophylactic and protective for back pain in manual workers lifting 70 pounds throughout the day or climbing hydro linemen? I'll buy it. Sure. Okay. Uh, I'll say no. Yeah, they, they, they didn't. They had more pain because they used their backs more. Right. So it's the same deal. Those who have stiff hips and just lift with their backs 
uh, are the ones who uh, were, were back injured. The ones who had hip mobility and used patterns of movement that didn't create stress concentrations in their back still did the same job right in a more resilient way so i have several layers of evidence that uh, th that that was published uh, many years ago early 2000s yeah. right so it's all there uh, yeah you just have to don't read the abstract go and read the the, the full study to appreciate the variance of the data which is yeah. where the gold is in these studies. That's right. Uh, Stu, you've got four books published and you're kind of maybe working on a couple more. Uh, where can people find them and, and uh, maybe uh, give, give a little plug for, for your books that you, you have? Well, I wrote a book for clinicians, my first one called Low Back Disorders, and it has a fairly extensive description of different assessment tests. And uh, as you know, we don't look for reliable tests because those by definition are simple little tests. Every, every clinician gets the same answer on and it's the one they teach you at medical school and whatnot. I'm interested in the ones that are very specific. They really are specific in honing in what the causal mechanism of pain is. So that's what the book uh, has and it has some preventive strategies, evidence-based and the beginning of training out of pain, but it's an academic book. It's horrible to read. There's lots of references and figures and graphs and all this stuff. And it, then, it, it took me through chiropractic school. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for funding my return. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then um, I, I wrote uh, the next book, Assuming They're Out of Pain, Now Let's Get Them to Perform. And that was Ultimate Back Fitness and Performance. Then with Brian Carroll, Brian came to me as a patient. You know the story. He already held a world record in, in squats anyway, uh, in powerlifting, and he had a terrible uh, back injury. Uh, however, he now has come back and he has set the highest squat record of all time, 1,306 pounds, I believe. That's insane. So Brian is, uh, uh, we, I stupidly said to him when he came here, um, because I said, I, I hope I can get you out of pain. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm, there's no promises, but I'll try and do my best to get you out of pain. And then Brian being Brian, world champion, gold medalist, this is what the attitude you're up against. He said, okay, well, when I'm out of pain, I want my record back. I, I want to go again. And I said, oh, well, if you can set the record, we'll, 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 we'll write a book about it. And he held my feet on oh, fire. Man. So that's where that book came from. Well, I think that's such a neat book to kind of teaches how to use like injury or bad things as a catalyst to, to kind of bring us back. Well, it, it really is a story of psychology and, and uh, coaching and, and how you handle uh, adversity because far too many back pained people are so deep into PTSD. Right. And they are unaware of the mechanism of their pain. And so it strikes them at any time. If you had a bogeyman going around hitting you on the head with a baseball bat, you never knew when that was coming, you'd have PTSD too. So this is why I'm so against not giving patients a real education as to what their specific pain mechanisms are. Now they understand the bogeyman. So next time they have pain, it doesn't trigger PTSD. It triggers them to say, oh, I was just tutored here. That pain was my instructor. That was the gift. 
Now, let me go back and repeat the mistake I just made, and now I'm going to relift that box for my grandson or get in and out of the car or whatever it was. I'm going to, McGill showed me the movement hack around it. Okay, I got it. I leave with success. And it's a totally different shift on uh, the psychology of empowerment. So that's, I'm glad you picked that up. Because well, especially that's, that's the real undertone of that book. And I mean, the responsibility that we have to a human being or a person. I mean, I think the beginning of that book opens up talking about like, I mean, you talk about being at a low point. It sounded like he was at, I mean, at a very, very low point. He, he had a pistol in his Right. Head. So it doesn't get any lower than that. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. We are kind of in the life-saving business, actually. Yeah. Well, we are. Yeah. Yeah. We change. Uh, you know, I, I, I talk to young people these days, and more than giving them the nuts and bolts, it's more of a pep talk on the responsibility of mastery and professionalism. Pay your dues. Mm -hmm. Go and learn all you can. Stay off social media and arguing with people who are your peers and go and study and learn from the people who are the best in the world of whatever the craft is. Learn what it is that makes them great and copy them and try and create that level of mastery yourself because you change people's lives. Get it right. Because if you don't get it right, they're going to be coming to Backfit Pro or well colleague or, or, or someone else. So it gave I, me shivers almost. You say that. That is exactly I, right. I, I want to put myself out of business. Uh, <laughs> honestly, that's always yeah. been the objective. Yeah, and people laugh point. when I say that. But uh, it, it isn't going to happen because uh, think, think of it. Our dads used to spend a career... Uh, whether they were a plumber or a carpenter, they spent their lifetime getting the joinery right. Now if someone gets an expert in software in a specific program and they're the world's leader for six months and then it's something else and they're, they're do you know what I mean? Oh, and I know exactly so what you mean. The, the, yeah. the, the striving for mastery is something I keep emphasizing with our uh, young uh, clinicians. Anyway, my last book, um, Back Mechanic, I wrote for the uh, lay public. And uh, it was the hardest book I ever wrote. That was four years of writing it and rewriting it to give enough evidence and guidance without sugarcoating things to empower people and show them how to do it and not trigger their pain. Give them movement hack options and really desensitize it. I also had to make it consumable. And that was the struggle. That would be Where's the, first, the yeah. balance point? So uh, that's uh, that, and uh, it's sold not too badly. And uh, I think it's helped a few people. I hope. Does it help everybody? No, it doesn't. But uh, I can say this much. At the university, we, we followed up with every patient that we ever saw. And as I said at the outset of our interview upstairs, her podcast, I never saw the fresh back pain people or the easy ones. I only ever saw the failures. They've already been to 10 different clinicians right. and they've been basically taught to fail. A lot of them were told, you've been to the Cairo, the shrink, the whatever, and the last thing left for you is 
surgery. And I said, all right, let's try virtual surgery. And I told this story upstairs. This and I'd so like to good. leave on that. Yeah. 95, and, and that book is virtual surgery. That's what it really is. So don't get the surgery, but start behaving and go through the steps as if you had surgery and build yourself back again with forced rest, let things settle and build it all back up again. 95% of the people who followed that program in a two-year follow-up were glad that they didn't have the surgery and they were happy oh, with their lives. So telling. So awesome. yeah. 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 So now I, I have lots of colleagues who are outstanding surgeons and thank goodness that we have them because they really do miracles with some people uh, as well and putting them back together again. So this isn't a, a kick at surgery at all. Yeah. Uh, there's absolutely a time and a place. And there's a chapter in there guiding the people on the risks to them. And obviously you want low risk surgery with a very high chance of good outcome. Yeah, right. Um, but it, it gives you some of the warning signs on when the chance for a real outcome is a lot lower than they may be led to believe. And that's not a good life either. Right. And you've got, uh, anyway, we, we won't need to go in there. But those are the books and uh, you can get them well, at Amazon and Backfit Pro, though. Come well, on. you can go to Backfit Pro too. Yeah, that's that's the better place. Come on, let's let's, yeah. let's support them a little bit more than Amazon. How about that? Well, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll put links in the show notes so you guys have have, have all the access to it and stuff like that. But, and yeah. you're still teaching courses. You got some help now. We have uh, Ed and um, Joel. Yes. Who, those are two. Uh, I know both of them. They're just great, yeah, great guys. They, they've both been with me a lot of years. And uh, I'm so proud of them. They are. Uh, they they do an excellent job. They do a better job than I do. But uh, uh, I know people say, "Oh, McGill, we want you to come and what?" So what we did with the pandemic was we put all my lectures online, and there's 60 hours. Uh, the 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 content online is now more dense than what we would ever have time to do in a course. So it's 60 hours of online. They get a year's access to that, and then we put on hands-on skills development sessions in different places in the world. And they teach the assessment, they play jazz with them and make it a real living uh, process. And it goes right from the scientific foundation through the assessment to high performance training. Uh, so that's how we're doing it these days. And as I said, Ed and Joel, they're, I'm too close to it. And they teach it better than I do because they're they had to learn it too. Whereas, you know, someone asks me a question and I'm like, oh, well, you know, it depends if the patient is this, <laughs> then follow this. If the patient is that, then do that. And, and then the poor person who asked the question is just, oh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I get it. My answer is always, I, I can't answer your question until we have a person in front of us. Mm -hmm. And then the assessment plus the patient will show us the way. Let's get that. Yeah. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. So when you became a young clinician, and I know you're following the same footsteps, did this way of having the science and following the assessment, did it allow the patients to become your teachers? Yes, 100%. That's where, I mean... Basically, I always say everything I've learned, I've basically learned like from my patients, you know what I mean? 
I got success stories. I also have horror stories, you know, and you never think about the ones you help. You always think about the ones you didn't help. But I mean, my lack of ability to change people's function early on and how I learned this was we were, we're in a small town. And so I would see my failures and I would just assume people were doing good and things like that. And because early on I wasn't good at changing function, I learned a valuable lesson. Cause I mean, we're in a small town where you know everybody basically. So my patients absolutely taught me so many, so many lessons about, like I had them out of pain. I would see them maybe once or twice and think they were doing fine. And then like I would see them, they'd tell me a different story, you know? So that was probably the, the most valuable lesson that I've learned uh, from my patients. But for me, every patient is a puzzle to me. And because of that, I get around like the difficultness of human beings and things like that. I'm just constantly playing the game of seeing like, you know, if I do this intervention, what happens? And because of that, I never burn out. I'm still excited to see patients and that's kind of my story. So as much teaching as I do, I mean, honestly, and, and they know this, I mean, my favorite thing to do is to see patients. So, yeah, well, that's, I'm so glad to hear that. I feel the same way. It's yeah. uh, here I am. I've, I've left the university, but I'm not leaving the patients. <laughs> right. No, I, I love still, that. Uh, the patients are coming to you. That's what I love about I, I just feel so privileged. Um, and I don't get it right all the time either. And I have to go back. And Or I might have said something that was just <laughs> so stupid for me to say. And it, somehow it came out of my mouth. And, anyway, <laughs> what are your thoughts? Yeah, same. I mean, I, I've been lucky. I get to be around people like you with this podcast and, and to see patients and all that together is, yeah, it's just so much fun. So, but boy, the same thing, like I get excited being in the office and stuff because every patient is so different, you know, you can, you can draw conclusions little by little by the things you've seen or that you've heard or, you know, that I've maybe read from you and then you can see it in real life. And then it's just another add on to the next patient and the next patient, and the next patient. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, having the science early on for me, it forced me to think differently. Even like in school, when I didn't have patients in front of me, it still was forcing me to think differently about things that were being taught or things that were, um, you know, I've been hearing stories about or, you know, hearing people like Brett talk about their patients. And so the, the science gave me like a little bit of light and then to see it in practice. And then it was just kind of like nudging together further by further, so. Yeah, yeah, this thought process of it's, it's it's almost like being a detective and solving a crime. Yeah, yeah. And it just makes it so exciting. <clears throat> yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like a Columbo movie. Uh, every single patient, well, let me uh, think about that. Uh, do you mind if I ask you one more question? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, exactly. It is. It is so stimulating to finally get through and solve this for this poor, tortured person. Yeah, yeah. It really is that we we talked to the the further you go down this like you said the more attracted difficult patients are you know like difficult patients will find a way to find you the more you're going down that route and i'm sure that you can attest to that is is the better you've gotten the more difficult the patients have probably gotten uh, without question and uh i don't know if i should say this or not because it's certainly not in my best interest but i would say i have motivated people because you see where i live I'm not the easiest guy to get to in the world. <laughs> right. You've got to really work. Yeah, you here. do. You do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have a uh, little local airport here, and uh, some of the VIPs fly themselves in, or their you know, country flies them in, or 
or whatever, and I go out right out on the tarmac here and uh, pick them up in my old beat-up truck. And, uh, you know, there's no customs officers or anything like that because <laughs> right. the, the, the pilot fills out a manifest. The government knows exactly who's coming sure. in. And uh, they, uh, they, uh, it's kind of interesting how there's different categories of people in the world and how they travel. But most people, they just fly to Toronto. Yeah. And as you know, it's quite a way to get from Toronto up to here. <laughs> so. It's beautiful and it is worth it though. So that, I'd add one more thing. The thing that is also invigorating for me is that I am getting so much better exponentially by the year. It's insane. Like I am so much better than I was even two years ago and four years ago. Like I think like when you're paying attention, like you get better at such a rate. It's that's what's exciting to me. Like there's no stagnation, you know. So I heard you give a lecture in Holland the last time we were together, and it was very much on being present pattern recognition you know the lecture you gave yeah it was it was masterful Brett and uh, uh, good on you that's uh, if you can keep repeating that message to your uh, colleagues and all of a sudden it makes this uh, profession uh, and it's so much more than a profession it's a pastime but it's also a uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for uh, I need a religious kind of a word. In that. Cult? <laughs> no, 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 no. Not, 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 <laughs> in a good way. Not, not a cult. But it's an experience that gives you back more than you put in mm. when you reach the level you're at. And I think that's what I was hearing there. When, you know, you're beginning, it's you got to keep working at that mastery. And then all of a sudden you hit that flow state. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it gives you back so much more. Right. You need to yeah. put in, and, and uh, I get better too with each patient that I see. My problem is I'm forgetting the stuff I did 30 <laughs> years ago, and you kind of get to the point where you know you can live by the feel of it just a little bit more, and I don't have to measure how long they can V sit for for <laughs> the endurance and things like that. You've earned the right to take a couple shortcuts. I well, think. So. <laughs> Yeah, you've earned the right. Well, Stu, thank you so much for having us. Number one, thanks for inviting us into your home. Uh, thank you. What a, what a true pleasure. Uh, I mean, Brett and I could both speak forever and thank you. And I, I know for me personally, your your work invigorated me in chiropractic school and kept me going. And so I'm forever thankful for that. And uh, we're just thankful for the the that you're still going. You you, you still are, are have energy to treat patients and that is so freaking cool. Like that gives me excited. Well, Stu is so unique in that he's not only an engineer, he's a researcher and he's still treating patients. And so that's why I think his message is so important. So you can't, I mean, it's hard to find anybody in the world that is, mm -hmm. is doing that. So that's right. We've yeah. been friends a long time, Brett. Yeah. How many years would it be? Um, probably so right 20. You were just finishing up at Logan, right? Yeah. So what year was that? Uh, that would have been 2003. Okay. So, so about, about uh, over 20 years, 2021. Yeah. And, uh, it's been a good friendship all those years and now we're leaving with new friends. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's cool. There you go. 
Well, you promised us a glass of wine, so uh, I say let's go have a glass of wine. Fantastic. Talk about anything yeah. besides clinical work. No. Not no, 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 no. That's okay. <laughs> That's right. All right, guys. Thank you uh, for tuning in. Thank you uh, to Stu for having us out. Uh, go to backfitpro.com. Uh, buy the books. Uh, read them. Pour over them. Go to PubMed. Type in McGill and uh, have some fun. So uh, with that being said, stay tuned for the next one and uh, good luck with patience. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Gestalt Education Show. Uh, if you liked it, share it, subscribe to it, uh, send it to your friends, send it to someone that needs to hear this message. Uh, we really want everyone to be able to, to tune in and, and get the, the best clinical advice that they can, which uh, we're hoping that we're giving to you with these special guests. So um, if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to us, or if you have any suggestions on upcoming uh, conversations, let us know. Uh, for a list of our upcoming courses, we're adding them all the dang time. So go to gestaltedu.com, click on courses, and they'll all be right there for you. All right, have a good day.